electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. Here's what's ahead this hour. Goldman Sachs says there's now only a 20% chance of recession this year. Have we gone from hard landing to soft landing to the economy taking off again? Our market guest says there's one sector in particular with a multi-decade runway. He's here to tell us which one. But even as the no landing narrative grows, so are credit card usage and debt levels. How significant are the consumer cracks bubbling under the surface? The CEO of Primerica is here with a brand new report. Plus explosive demand for one mining company that's now opening a couple locations here in the U.S. Shares of Piedmont Lithium up 35% this year and the CEO also joins us ahead. Let's start with the market though. Dom Chu has our numbers and we just keep climbing, Dom. We do keep climbing. We are just a stone's throw away from the 52-week highs that we saw on Friday's session on an intraday basis. But it's been green across the board pretty much all day for the major indices. The Dow Industrial is up 81 points. One quarter of 1%, 34,591. Decently above the 4,500 level for the S&P. 45,19 the last trade. They're up about 13 points, one third of 1%. To give you an idea of the trading range so far today at the highs of the session, up roughly 16 points. And then up, or rather down one at the lows of the session. So it's generally been tilting towards the positive side of things. The Nasdaq composite, about three quarters of 1% gain, 98 points to the upside, 14,212. Speaking of that tech trade overall, you may recall that just in Friday's session, one of the big ETFs that tracks the semiconductor industry, the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF ticker SMH, hit a record high in Friday's session. We're not far from that right now, but one other ETF that has hit a fresh 52-week high is the iShares Tech Software ETF, up 42% so far year-to-date. And we'll put a little check mark there because, again, a 52-week high. But keep an eye on this spread, the difference between the semiconductors and the software stocks. We are seeing a little bit of that growing out there, so we'll see if there's a dynamic there that comes back towards a little bit more of a mean reversion trade at some point. Watch technology. And then one of the stocks that are industries, I guess you want to look at, is what's happening in EVs. Uh, Tesla unveiled its first ever Cybertruck rolling off the production line from its Texas factory just this past weekend. That helping to power a 2% gain there. Meanwhile, Ford coming out today saying that they're going to cut the price of their F-150 Lightning electric truck by up to $10,000 per model. That stock is down about 5% right now. So the EV price wars are starting to kick up a little bit. Tesla getting a tailwind from its truck. Ford getting a little bit of a headwind from its price cuts. We'll see if that dynamic keeps up. Kelly, I'll send things over to you. Yeah, that's a biggie, Dom. Thank you very much. The market has been on a tear this year. The S&P is up 17 percent. The Nasdaq soaring about double that, up 35 percent. But my next guest says the gains aren't over yet. In fact, he's turning to one sector in particular where he sees a multi-decade runway ahead. And here with me now is Mark Smith, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors. All right, Mark, drumroll, please. I just want to cut right to it. Where do you, you know, see multi-decade runway? Well, when you look at that semiconductors, mm. that's the sector where I think you want to be. The last time I was on, I spoke to you, Kelly. Thanks for having me back on. Of course. Welcome um, back. Uh, that, th- I think this sector is going to, I think, take over 
all type of market share from all businesses, all type of, uh, I think everything's going to change. And but, so when you're looking at, you got, wouldn't we just say, just because everyone's going to go, how much of this is already priced in? What is NVIDIA up 200% this year? So just give that, put that into context for us. Yeah, listen, I have clients at, at S&P 500 companies all over the country. And when I talk to them, they are now just starting to have committee meetings about what they're going to do with AI. And so when you think about that, I think we're in the first inning because we haven't really seen companies implement AI. And we're not going to see that, I think, for the next couple of years. That said, the stocks always want to anticipate that, right? So NVIDIA goes up 200 percent, anticipating that now all these meetings are going to happen and there's going to be huge demand or not. I mean, do you think it's justified by some of the earnings projections that are feasible for the next couple of years? If you've used chat GPT, you know it's justified. I think that um, when you talk to a lot of the executives at these companies, they really haven't used AI yet. They're hearing about it from their younger counterparts. But I think when you when these companies really start to see um, how you can um, make your company and your employees more efficient, by using AI, I think it's going to be a no-brainer for companies to implement this technology. Maybe a lot of people would say NVIDIA is kind of the obvious or the poster child here, the biggest beneficiary. But are there other chip names? You know, you could say semiconductors and AI, but then you wonder about Intel. So how specific is this call uh, to the to the sector? Listen, this would be a global phenomenon. So when you're looking at uh, companies in Taiwan or you're looking at companies here at home, you're going to have to use these chips in order to compete in the modern age. And so I think that all of the semiconductors are going to benefit um, from this new normal. All of them, even the likes of Intel are some of the ones that we would say are, aren't really at, at the lead or at the vanguard. They're making kind of the, you know, more commodity like chips, maybe for cars or household devices or that kind of thing. Absolutely. And you look at Intel specifically, they had billions of dollars that they're just allocating to new plants here at home. So uh, they have it takes a couple of years to build these plants. So I think that Intel is going to be a story probably for the next year or two. But I think, again, SMH and all the semiconductors are where you want to be long term. I know you also like large cap financials. Now, I don't know if you also see multi-decade runway there or if this is more a kind of beneficiary of the banking turmoil we've seen and that that sort of thing. Well, Kelly, I'm a value investor. So when you're looking at all the different sectors out there uh, coming out this year, the banks have really underperformed. And if you look at what happened with J.P. Moore and Wells Fargo um, last week, these banks are making money on the top and bottom line. They're knocking it out of the park. Net interest margin at Wells Fargo was $13 billion just, just as the whole cash. We're not really doing anything. We're holding the cash as a bank. So I think going forward, if rates continue to go up, which I think they will, given what's going on in the economy and the soft landing, um, I think that you're going to see that the banks really start to shine because of all the different ways they can make money from wealth management to asset management. Net interest margin, I said before, credit cards, mortgages. If you look at a mortgage in your credit card, they're at record highs uh, over the last 20 years. But again, we're talking about just kind of the handful of largest firms that are the winners, maybe, uh, while some of the others will continue to struggle and kind of come up with a business model that, you know, maybe includes implicit government backing of all of your deposits. L listen, there, there's no doubt about it. The, uh, the regional banks got hit hard, and I think they will continue to get hit hard as rates start to go up. So you're really going to want to hide out in these large money setter banks, and, you, and you're absolutely Absolutely right. The federal government is going to have a very difficult time making any of those large banks default. And so you've got to kind of have that in the background as well um, from, a, from a safety perspective. So, yeah, large banks because of all the revenue that they can make and because of the fact that you've got the U.S. government as your biggest backer. Let me circle back. As you said, you, you know, 
stylistically more of a value investor, and most of them don't land in the I want to chase NVIDIA up 200% bucket. So just to come back to, but but again, value is looking, a lot of the stocks uh, Buffett and Munger might have bought over the years. Sometimes there were questions about, well, are these value stocks or not? So what are the criteria you're using? Obviously, we're talking about the kind of runway for a couple of decades to say, but what are the kind of the financial criteria you're looking at? Or sometimes does that just not matter when there's like a, an obvious trend in front of you that you think has value? Listen, when I'm looking at all the portfolios that I manage for clients, I'm making sure that we're not uh, keeping names that are running up 150, 200% without trimming. So we're doing that all the time. We're constantly rebalancing and you all at home should be doing the same thing. And so when you're looking at that, you got to make sure to say, listen, if financials haven't done well and they're really hitting their numbers, it might make sense to pull some money away from the semiconductors, especially if they've run up 200% and go into uh, you know, a sector that's a little bit undervalued. So I would say to, uh, to everyone, that if you're if you're in a sector that's really, you know, the, the tech sector, uh, the SMH, all that, and you're up 100, 150 percent, pigs get slaughtered. Get out of that. Sell a little bit. I didn't sell, sell all. I said sell a little bit and go into, a, a, I think, a sector that has more value. I think financials is one of them. All right. So as we sit back here and look at the fact that GDP is still growing, uh, we're still adding jobs, the economy is not slowing. Goldman's kind of taking in its its recession odds. You're you're starting to pull out the, you know, the accolades for for Chair Powell here. You think he's really worthy? Uh, I mean, just tell me about the job you think he's doing right now. Listen, it's not about how I think he's doing. It's just the, the results, right? I mean, we have a nickname from the office, Captain Sully, because this thing is really going in for a smooth landing here. Um, when you're looking at all the different metrics that you can think of in regards to is he accomplishing his goal, I'd say it is. You're looking at inflation at two-year lows. You're looking at the cost of used cars going down across the country dramatically. Energy prices down. Uh, the only thing that really has it, I've seen a, a big correction is real estate, and that's because there's no supply. Have you talked to anyone that's looking for a home in the major markets to see, is there a lot of inventory? No, it's, it's had the opposite effect of what's it. I, I think he would, he'll be very amused to hear that that is the nickname making the rounds. You think in a year you're going to look back and say, oh, we should have known that, that you know, this, this landing was going to turn out a little differently. Listen, uh, you know, Chairman Powell, just like all of us, are just looking at the numbers day by day. I know sometimes they're lagging, but this is what he has to go by. And I think he's making the right calls based upon what he's seeing with CPI and, um, and all the different uh, rates of inflation and how they're going down. And um, I think that, you know, given uh, how strong we are as a economy, the S&P 500 is up 20 percent. I think there's a, a, probably a case for him to continue to go higher. And I think the street's already pricing that in. For the market. Yes. Yeah. All right, Mark, thank you. Good to see you again. We appreciate your time. Good to see you, Mark Smith, Wells Fargo Advisors. Well, there aren't many bearish data points to highlight lately, but one of the bigger concerns out there is what's happening with credit card usage and delinquencies. A new survey from Pimerica adding some color to that, showing a third of its middle-income respondents say they've increased their card usage, and 61% are unable to pay their balance in full each month. Here with more is Glenn Williams, Pimerica CEO. Glenn, it's good to see you again. Welcome. It's great to be back with you, Kelly. Can you give us some context? Is 61% a big jump in terms of the people who can't pay off their bills each month? Yeah, we really are seeing the stress of middle-income families as they continue to deal with the compounding effects of inflation. While it's true that inflation is slowing, we're still seeing, you know, prices are up. They've not gone down. They're just going up more slowly. And when you have a multi-year compounding effect of that, maybe 3% this year on top of 7 or 8% last year, you've got middle-income families dealing with double-digit growth in prices. And there's just not enough money at the end of the month. And so what we see is they're bridging the gap with the use of their credit cards. We're seeing usage increase, balances increase, 
all at unfriendly interest rates. And so it's becoming a real challenge for these families. To, to put it sort of weirdly or flip it around, I mean, I look at your share price and it's up considerably, you know, 45 percent this year or something to that effect. Why is that? Well, I think if you look in, in the long-term scheme of things, we have some periods where we underperform and some periods where we outperform like most stocks do. Uh, I don't think it's directly connected to the circumstances of today or the circumstances necessarily of the survey. Uh, you know, we're in this for the long haul. We're a company that's been around almost 50 years. We've been public for 13. And uh, we're just out there every day trying to meet the needs of a market that generally doesn't have access to all of the financial solutions maybe that the wealthy would have. And so that serves us well when we serve our clients well. Would you say that you're a beneficiary of higher rates because of, you know, I know you guys are in a couple of you know, life insurance businesses and those kinds of things, which we tend to think of as, you know, hey, finally, I can get some yield on these extremely long term holdings. Sure, there is some benefit to our life company uh, of the higher rates, but uh, you know, the way we run our life business is fairly capital light. We're in the term insurance business, so we're mm. not holding assets like some uh, most of the more traditional companies that have cash value products. So we don't get as much benefit from an increase in interest rates maybe as the average life company. But there is some tailwind there for us. Yeah. So let's turn this back because you know the flip side of this is some Americans are also benefiting. By the way, finally able to get some yield, but I don't think it's as many of these middle Americans as who are capturing your survey, and they're facing 20-whatever percent credit card rates right now and things of that nature. What would you say this data most correlates with historically? What kinds of periods? I mean, is it as bad? You know, are we back to pre-pandemic levels? Are we talking, you know, something worse than that? Yeah, as we monitored the middle income markets kind of attitudes, that's the reason we created the financial security monitor was at the beginning of the pandemic was to try to make sure that we could stay in touch and, and really have our finger on the pulse of what middle income families were dealing with. Uh, we did see concerns as measured by the survey increase, obviously, during the pandemic. As the pandemic started to ease, people got, got a little more optimistic and had just a little breathing room. But now I think the cost of living has overwhelmed that. And uh, while uh, you know, we find middle income families are eternally optimistic, it's amazing uh, just how uh, positive they are in light of the financial challenges they face. We are seeing concern levels rising. And I think the longer we stay in this condition where the use of credit cards is bridging the gap between their incomes, which are increasing slightly, we'll acknowledge that, but they just haven't covered all the ground that was lost due to increasing uh, cost of living. Uh, we're seeing those credit cards used and we're very concerned that if interest rates remain high, those balances continue to compound. It's just going to put more stress on these families financially. Yeah, and for an industry, the leisure and vacation industry that we see so much, you know, excitement over right now, there are there is some concern expressed here. Forty three percent, you say, plan to spend less on vacation and activities than they did last year. Um, only 14 percent expect to see more. A lot of people are looking for free attractions and that kind of thing. I also just want to mention, to your point about income, I mean, you've raised the income threshold for the survey. You know, you normally would say, OK, middle income is 3,200K. Well, now middle income is 3,230K. And I thought that itself was an interesting development. Yeah, as we monitor the survey and the types of responses we're getting, we recognize it's it's a moving target as, as household incomes move. And so we have expanded the range of the survey to make sure we weren't missing important data at kind of the upper end of the middle market. And we do see what you described. We see that non-essential purchases are the first things to go, as you would expect. I don't think there's anything surprising. And of course, vacations, travel, and that type of thing are on that list. What concerns us even more was the 72% that indicated they'd pause saving for the future. Hmm. So that's where, uh, you know, it, it's 
it's a concern now, but it's a greater concern because they'll lose the compounding years that they'll need for their retirement. So, uh, you know, we are concerned about people not getting to take a vacation. That's always important for our, our mental health and probably our physical health. But uh, financially, the bigger challenge is going to be those that are postponing saving for retirement and can't make up those lost years. Glenn, thanks for bringing us these results. We appreciate it. It's good to check in with you. Always great to be with you. Glenn Williams with Primerica. Still ahead, more disappointing data out of China, but my next guest doesn't expect any big stimulus from the government. What will it take for Beijing to budge? We'll dig into the data and the international ripple effects. Plus, our earnings expectations still too high for the market. Our guest defies the bears who are throwing in the towel. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at the market. Dow hanging on to an 85-point gain, but it's the underperformer up a quarter point today. Russell leading the way up 1.2%. NASDAQ up three quarters of a percent. S&P at 4519 up 13 points, 10 year down to 381. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The economic data out of China overnight showing further slowing. The country's GDP barely growing quarter on quarter for the three months ending June, while youth unemployment rate, uh, the youth unemployment rate reached a new record high. As a result, Morgan Stanley revised down its full-year real GDP estimate for China to 5% in line with the goals Beijing laid out in March. But concerns are mounting as well over global food prices. After Russia halted its wartime deal allowing Ukraine to export its grain by way of the Black Sea, it was a deal seen as essential to keeping food prices is stable. Ag stocks like Archer Daniels Midland and MGP Ingredients are both higher today. Here to talk about the ripple effects of all of it, let's bring in Dewardrick McNeil, Managing Director at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. Dewardrick, welcome. You know, in a minor way, we're not seeing a ton of, you know, agflation, we'll call it. Say a little bit of push and pull, though, on deflation and inflationary front. Which one's more significant? Well, I think at, at this point, there's a lot of concern about some of the deflationary uh, potential that we see in the Chinese economy. Look, the data that we saw uh, and reported for June really shows how vulnerable China is to both global economic conditions, Kelly, as well as geopolitical tensions. And on the latter, it shows why China has been so aggressive in trying to step up its diplomacy, but also its outreach to foreign businesses, uh, begging them to stay put, uh, because a little bit, a modest amount of de-risking we see uh, just how little room China has uh, for that, uh, Kelly. They they are going to have to really figure out how to find a domestic way to stabilize their economy and grow. And the data uh, that we just saw is showing that that's just not uh, that's not happening at all. And the youth employment number at twenty one point three percent, Kelly. This is a real concern uh, for many 
of us because we know what the political instability, a number like that over a long period of time, uh, could bring uh, to China. Sure. So one of the uh, sort of start with the stimulus aspect of this, where people don't seem to expect much. Uh, why? Why? Why is there just not much? I, I feel like Beijing has the mentality of it can do whatever needs to be done. I find it hard to believe they would just sit on their hands and not do more to try to stimulate a lagging economy. A lot of people are scratching their heads, certainly those in the market who have been expecting this robust stimulus to roll out now uh, for two quarters. And I just don't see it happening, Kelly, for a few reasons. First, I think with respect to the modest GDP uh, headline figure, 5 percent, I think many people in the Chinese government still believe they can hit that number. But I think it's also important to note that China spent a lot of time trying to de-risk its financial sector, deleverage its economy. And the fear here is if you let it rip, if you turn on the taps, all of that hard work uh, will, will be uh, gone down the tubes. And then we have to remember that there is a heavy, heavy bur uh, debt burden at the local levels, Kelly, which they still haven't really grappled with because local governments uh, really took on the lion's share of what it needed to fund the zero uh, COVID uh, uh, policies that, that Xi Jinping put in place. So there, there's just a lot of concern about what it would do to the economy uh, and all the work that they've done over the last several years to deleverage if they turn on the taps. Sure. So if, if I were their leadership and I said, OK, well, my, my new number one priority is fixing youth unemployment, how would I go about doing that exactly? Well, look, I, I've been debating this. That I'll tell you what I think. Uh, some economists may push back on this. But look, I think instead of focusing on supply side, I think it's time for the, the Chinese government to get more creative, perhaps target households with some stimulus like we saw here in the U.S. And people will say, look, well, there's a lot of savings in China. It is true. Savings are elevated. But those savings, Kelly, are safety net. It's right. not a license to spend. And so at some point, if you want spending to increase, perhaps you have to target uh, households and try and get people spending again on big ticket items. Yes, there's been some spending on local tourism, but two numbers in the data that stand out to me. Automobiles down 1.1 percent, construction materials down 6.8 percent. That tells me that no one is spending big in a retail, a, 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 a property sector that was cooling slightly has, uh, that was heating up slightly has now cooled again. So I think there's going to have to be some creativity at this next Politburo Standing Committee at the end of the month. You can no longer tinker around the margins at this, Kelly. The, the economy yeah. is in trouble. I just wonder if they'll still be pushing on a string. You know, people are smart. Even here in the U.S., when we got the stimulus checks, a lot of that was spent in ways that weren't long-term productive. There was a huge increase in warehouse jobs, things like that. So even if you give the Chinese consumer short-term spending, they're smart enough to know they need that safety net. You know, if anything, COVID enhanced the need for that, and they'll probably be less spendthrift going forward. I think you're right. That is the challenge that I think many people find with the checks to households. But, you know, at this point, Kelly, I, I don't know that they know. I certainly don't know what should be done, but I know what has been done is not working. And so tinkering around the margin here isn't going to grow the Chinese economy. So there is going to have to be some more policy innovation brought to the table. We may see that at this upcoming Politburo Standing Com uh, Committee meeting that will set economic policy for the next six months. But this is a real problem, and it's not going away 
uh, anytime soon. I'll be very curious. And we're showing the currency there, which remains towards the weaker end of its recent range. Before I let you go, Dvorak, what's your reaction to everything going on in Russia between their pulling out of the grain deal, the collapse of this bridge that Putin's making some very upset comments about this morning? Well, we're seeing the results of a war that is not going in Putin's uh, direction. With respect to the grain deal, it's a little curious to me, uh, and the timing is certainly fortuitous, that we have the Turkish uh, government who helped to broker this deal with the U.N., uh, agreeing to allow for Finland and Sweden to join NATO last mm -hmm. week. And we also have the Ukrainian a foreign minister at the U.N. today talking about the war, and then we get this announcement on the grain deal. But, look, I think that there's some downsides to this for Russia because the, the places where this is going to bite and hurt the most are places like Africa and, and South Asia, places that, that Russia and China have really been trying to court and woo yes. to their side. Uh, and it's just this, to me, is a shot in the foot. Do you think the market, you know, there has there wasn't a huge reaction. There seems to be more concern than there is actual kind of movement reflected in the prices so far. What does that tell you? Uh, that people believe this is likely a short term sort of pout by Russia. And that at some point, if you notice in the language, they talked about turning it back on when certain conditions are met. So hmm. this likely tells uh, people watching this that this is a way to sort of blow off steam for what has happened over these last several weeks. But I don't suspect that this will go on over the long term because I think it hurts Russia more than it than it hurts Ukraine or the U.S. And it hurts the people in countries that Russia really needs to to keep on its side. Absolutely. DeWardrick, great day to have you here. Thanks so much for sharing all your thoughts. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. DeWardrick McNeil with Longview. Coming up, a mega rally in the ARK-K ETF this year, up 60% since Jan 1, is not stemming the outflows from Kathy Wood's flagship fund. After all, it's still down 70% from its peak, and they exited their position in NVIDIA before that stock's monster run. It's the subject of today's tech check ahead. And as we head to break, here's a look at the heat map on the Dow 30 today. Intel, one of the strongest names leading the way, along with J.P. Morgan and Amex. Visa also hitting a new 50 two-week high. On the flip side, Verizon is the biggest laggard, hitting, I think, now a 12-year low. We've got all the details next. Don't go anywhere. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to The Exchange. Familiar picture with green on our screens here. Dow lagging, weighed down by Verizon. More on that in a moment. S&P's up a quarter percent. NASDAQ leading the way today. The Russell Small Cap's doing good as well. Let's catch you up on what's going on with the telcos. City downgraded a trio of them to neutral today, including AT&T down 6%. Frontier down 14%. And TDS, Telephone and Data Systems, down 6% today. City said the industry's historical use of lead sheath cabling is likely to keep weighing on the stocks for at least a few months and maybe longer. This all goes back to that Wall Street Journal investigation last week, tracing thousands of toxic lead cables across the country, finding out there has been some lead um, 
tainting, shall we say, and no one yet taking responsibility for it, even though the companies acknowledge they've been aware of it throughout the years. Citi says they couldn't quantify the financial risks exactly, but says it'll likely keep investors away for now. AT&T shares hit their lowest level in 30 years today. Verizon is now trading at a 12-year low. So again, Absolutely an area to watch here with massive pressure on the telcos until this issue gets sorted out. Elsewhere, Goldman is upgrading Yelp to a buy on the back of rising local advertising trends. The firm raising its price target to 47 from 38. And even with a 10 percent pop today, we're about five dollars shy of that. The stock at its highest level in two years, up 54 percent since Jan 1. For more on today's biggest analyst calls, go to CNBC.com slash pro. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News date. Speaking of pros, welcome back, Ty. Hey, thanks very much, Kelly. Uh, an escaped inmate in Pennsylvania back in prison today after evading authorities for nine days. They captured Michael Burham this weekend after a couple spotted him in their backyard. The couple called 911 and Burham was apprehended within two hours. The investigation continues into how the murder suspect got out of prison in the first place. And now new charges, of course, pending against him. Texas officials say the demand for power in the state will likely reach record highs as people crank up their air conditioners to escape the blistering heat there. Uh, but the power grid operator for some 26 million residents says it has enough resources to meet the soaring demand. It's hot everywhere and in the Mediterranean, the scorching heat isn't the only problem. There are wildfires there. Hundreds of people and animals evacuated today as strong winds stoked a very quick burning fire south of Athens. A police reportedly arrested one person for arson in Greece. Meteorologists there have warned of the high risk of fire as the country recovers, recovers from a blistering heat wave. Kelly, see you in a half hour. Yikes, Tyler. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Coming up, our forward earning projections climbing too high. My next guest thinks so and joins me to make his case. And before we go to break, let's get to some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Marriott nearing a fresh 52-week high after signing a new licensing deal with MGM that'll boost its presence on the Las Vegas Strip with 40,000 MGM rooms to Marriott's Bonvoy program. That said, spending in Asia continues to be a big question mark for the travel industry, especially after that China GDP data. Here's what Marriott CEO told Sarah Eisen on Squawk on the Street. Into April, in mainland China, Revpar was more than fully recovered to where we were in 2019. And in greater China, so inclusive of markets like Hong Kong and Macau, we were within just a couple percentage points of pre-pandemic Revpar. Welcome back to The Exchange. Goldman's Jan Hatzius lowering his recession odds over the next year to just 20% from 25%, citing cooling inflation and a strong labor market. He goes on to say July will mark the last rate hike of the cycle, and those economic conditions are also giving earnings projections a boost. But Raymond James isn't convinced just yet, writing in a new note that projections look, quote, materially too optimistic to us if nominal growth across the economy continues to slow. Joining me now is Tavis McCor, institutional equity strategist at Raymond James. Tavis, it's good to see you. Welcome. Hey, Kelly. Thanks a lot for having You're me. You're not allowed to be bearish anymore. That, you know, what? It, <laughs> doesn't it feel like that? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, the market was completely convinced we were going to have a recession uh, about a year, year and a half ago and uh, kind of got bored waiting around for it. And, right. and the only thing I'm, I'm highlighting this morning is, you know, the, the economy is still slowing uh, on a year-over-year basis in nominal terms, uh, whether you're looking at consumer spending, industrial production, 
retail sales we'll get tomorrow, nominal GDP, all these year-over-year trends look the exact same. Everything is decelerating. And earnings have been decelerating for the last four or five quarters as well. But when you look at the expectations for the second half of 23 and 24, it's for a pretty significant re-acceleration. Uh, in fact, the back half of 23 has about, about the same similarity and seasonality to 2021 when we were reopening. Hmm. Uh, and then 24 expectations at this point are 12% up from, from, from 23. So uh, I wouldn't say it's completely undoable, but something's got to break. Either the economy has to start improving year over year or these, these earnings probably have to come down. So do you think if we just maintain the status quo, you know, the way that we're treading water, let's call it, and we are able to do that for another six months, would we be able to meet those EPS projections or no? My guess would be probably not. Um, maybe a little lower this year, and then next year would have to come down pretty significantly. I, th I think to hit those numbers, at some point here, you've got to get a reacceleration in trends economically. I've seen people highlighting the Ford uh, move this morning as a, a disinflation risk to earnings. In other words, you may have seen the news they cut the price of the F-150. Um, you know, inflation, like we were, you were talking about nominal GDP, I mean, it does boost revenues. It does boost earnings. And then it kind of catches up with you, maybe especially on, on the bottom line. But going the other way on disinflation, it's great for the consumer. It's, you know, great for the Fed, but it kind of can be a problem for corporate America, can it? Not for every company, but for the for the index, when you kind of, you know, piece together 3,000 companies, what's pretty clear from COVID is that inflation is a benefit to earnings and probably disinflation is going to be a negative for earnings. We'll, we'll see if that's the case. It'll be a political problem if it's a, if it's earnings are benefiting from both inflation and, and disinflation. Where would you say is the most vulnerable? You know, I think some of the areas... Um, uh, that are more cyclical, traditional cyclical. So, so industrials, which have been very strong for the last uh, six, six to nine months, uh, consumer discretionary. Um, you know, the, the, those are the areas that right now um, have, we haven't seen the big earnings drops yet. And um, if you'd have to believe a lot of those companies in those areas have been benefiting from inflation. So, as inflation cools down. Uh, what I would suspect is there's probably more earnings risk than is baked into consensus numbers this time. Let's bring the industrials chart back because this is actually a great poster child or a microcosm maybe for what's going on in the economy where we could say, hey, there's no way. Look at this levitation the last couple of months. This is totally unsustainable. But the flip side of that is, well, there's massive fiscal stimulus still hitting. We talked about this uh, the other day with uh, Robert Kaplan, formerly of the Dallas Fed. So if we have a strong impulse from the fiscal side with a lot of 2024 20, sunset deadlines, by the way, maybe it makes sense these stocks are doing what they are doing and maybe those estimates are achievable. Yeah, I think it's going to be a battle for There are legitimate secular tailwinds to, to industrials. It's a really broad sector, so it's not broadly across everything in industrials, but some, some big pieces of it. Uh, and then there's a cyclical headwind that I think is coming. And you know, I don't know what the answer is in terms of which, which will outweigh the other. But, but I think right now in industrials, the first half of this year, the market's really just been focused on the, on the secular tailwinds and not really thinking about the potential cyclical headwinds that could be uh, just around the corner here as, um, as a lot of these companies kind of finish up their, their um, re rebuilding their channel inventories over the next year. So, so before I let you go then, when people, or when you're kind of just going through it and saying to yourself, so what, what gives and why is the market so strong, right? You know, aren't we all looking at the same numbers? Don't we all acknowledge that, <laughs> to, to use your earlier phrase, something's got to yeah. give? I mean, look, this, this could be like a one-hour TED talk, why the market's so <laughs> strong. But I, I, I think, like, um, 
Look, every every time the Fed hikes rates and goes through a hiking cycle, we just we went, just went through a heck of a one, right? And and I agree with the, the prior guess that that uh, you know July is probably the last rate hike. Every single time the market thinks we're going to get a soft landing, very rarely does that actually happen. But it's important to recognize that once the Fed stops hiking, all the outcomes look the same. Right now, there's no way to know. A soft landing looks the same as a hard landing would look, as it looks the same as a mild recession. All we know now is the economy is decelerating everywhere. And whether this ends up being a soft landing or a mild recession or a hard landing is, is really just where, where, the, where the growth declining and the, the, the deceleration starts to stabilize. And we haven't really seen that yet. If it happens in the back half of this, this year, then, then might perhaps maybe we'll get a soft landing. But um, historically, it, it would be hard. You know, you know, the Fed's even kind of saying they want to see some labor market weakness. So, yeah. um, yeah, so anyway, there's a, there's a lot there. But <laughs> I, I think that's the, that's the big issue. I want to see the TED Talk. I think that is that is now I, that is a challenge issued. We you know, if you make it short enough, we could maybe play it right here on the show, but not an hour, but maybe, you know, 10 minutes or something like that. If I make it short enough, I can't hedge myself in 100 different ways. So. <laughs> exactly. Tavis, thanks so much. Uh, you didn't hedge that at all, by the way. Very clearly laid out. We really appreciate your time. Great. Good talking. Tavis McCourt with Raymond James. Coming up, investors are taking profits on ArcK's big rebound this year. It was once the biggest actively managed ETF with nearly $30 billion in assets. But its AUM now sits in the single digits. We'll discuss the fallout next. Welcome back. Bailing on the Kathy Wood flagship ARK Innovation ETF. The fund seeing almost three quarters of a billion dollars in outflows, despite rallying 60 percent year to date. Dear Jabosa spoke to Wood herself about this during the Tech Check special on Friday. Hi, Dee. Well, Kelly, maybe it's not despite that rally this year. It's because of that rally. I mean, the ARK flagship fund suffered heavy, heavy losses in 2021 and 22 after, of course, the big pandemic boom. But some investors are saying, OK, we've made a little bit of those losses back. So now's the time to sell. We've seen about $230 million in net outflows this year alone, more than $700 million in net outflows over the last 12 months. So I did ask Kathy Wood herself what this perhaps signaled to her. Have a listen. Our asset retention has been spectacular. I think everyone would agree with that. Uh, asset retention through 21 and 22. Uh, we are up more than 50%, some of our funds 60% plus. Uh, so there would be natural profit taking. I do think we're beginning to see uh, investors shift from the NASDAQ 100 or NASDAQ take take maybe losses or gains there and into uh, our innovation fund because I think the values when it comes to innovation are in our fund. So, Kelly, she calls this natural profit taking. But if you go back to, let's say, the flagship fund's inception back in 2014, you'd actually be underperforming the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ 100. Kathy Woods often urges us to think long term, but that is the long term story here is that, yes, you had a huge pandemic boom, but Overall, it has been an underperformer in terms of tech stocks over the last, let's say, since back in 2014. That's a long time frame. Yeah, it, it, one of the most fascinating stories, right, to, to see the fund and to see Kathy everywhere and, and so many people piling in and then having a change of heart. Now, they're not back to the AUM they were pre-pandemic, but obviously performance has a lot to do with that as well. Yeah. Do we know about talent retention yeah. and, you know, how many other ET they, they've, they've expanded in size considerably over the last several years, and it feels like maybe that's still largely intact. 
That's a good that's a good point. Um, but I will say, though, that her fees haven't changed all that much. Right. Hmm. So she's still bringing in money. The um, what is it called? The fee that she collects is about 0.75 percent. Hmm. Let's take the QQQ, for example. That fee is about 0.2 percent. So even though, you know, the value of her assets under management is declining, she's still raking in money that way. Um, so it's an interesting question. Will she yeah. have to sort of scale back? But like she said to me, she thinks that, you know, people are going to put money into her because she has been that underperformer as well. So if they want innovation, they'd rather hold ARC exactly. than the NASDAQ or the NASDAQ 100. But no, so I often mean, with active question, management, to totally, people end up coming out of the cycle and going, you know what, next time I'll just stick with the index and it has, you know, lighter low. And over time, that's been a better bet. Yeah, exactly. Deirdre, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. Deirdre Bosa for this edition of Tech Check. Still ahead, Tesla supplier Piedmont Lithium was named a best idea for 2023 by TV Cowan back in December. And shares have jumped nearly 35% this year, and they're planning to build some new mines in the U.S. We will talk to the Piedmont CEO about that next. Welcome back, everybody. Lithium producer Piedmont up more than 30% this year as global demand for EVs and their key battery component continues to rise. Piedmont Lithium in the process of opening two mines, maybe more, two mines here in the U.S., North Carolina, the other in Tennessee. And it already has customer agreements with both Tesla and LG Chemical to start deliveries in the second half of the year. Joining me now for more is Keith Phillips. He is Piedmont Lithium's CEO. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So, uh, so much to get up to speed on. Um, you were talking a little bit a moment ago about the different of lithium and yours is more in quarries in, in North Carolina and it sounds like Tennessee soon. So all the lithium in the world came from North Carolina from the 1950s to the 1980s. It's something it really? not a lot of people know. I was a mining investment banker for a long time. I hadn't known that. So wow. yeah, two thirds, 60 or 65% of the world's lithium comes from quarries, essentially, mostly in Australia. There's a mineral called spodumene. So we're going to produce our lithium from spodumene concentrate. We'll upgrade the material that we concentrate. And we have mining projects in North Carolina, Quebec, which is producing now. Huh. It will be shipping soon. And in Ghana and Africa. And we have chemical projects in North Carolina and in Tennessee. Does it all end up in the same product that might go into a Tesla battery? Or does the fact that it comes from a quarry in your case and it might come from a, a, a salt pool or whatever we call a dried salt bed somewhere else, does that, are those different kinds of inputs or no? They can end up in the same place. They have different process flow sheets to get there. Uh, but there are some really wonderful assets in Chile and Argentina, big brine deposits. Hmm. There are a few. Uh, there are a lot of spodumene assets in Australia and others being developed around the world, including ours. But they get to the same place. We believe spodumene is, you know, the quarrying is easier. Uh, it actually is more environmentally friendly in a lot of ways. The impact on water supply and land mm, in, the, in the Atacama Desert is very significant for brine deposits. Uh, so we think we're in an area where, uh, you know, it's easier to do. It can be done more quickly. I think the car companies are going to rely increasingly on spodumene-based lithium supplies. How do the economics work? Is the inf you know, Inflation Reduction Act or all of these different incentives, are they primarily responsible for this new round of investment, or would this have happened on its own anyway? Yeah, it's a good question. So electrification is happening. Electrification of the vehicle business, is, it's booming. We'll, we'll more than double EV penetration in the U.S. from 2021 to 2023. Every EV needs a battery. They all need lithium. So there's been demand. What the uh, IRA in particular has really done is it's brought the whole supply chain to the U.S. Yes. So right now, over 80% of the lithium chemicals are produced in China. Wow. So the raw materials are in Australia, Chile, Argentina, elsewhere, but the, the downstream processing is in China. We're bringing that here. Where it all used to be, it, where it all began, it all started here in North Carolina. Do you do some of that processing yourself, or does that have to be regional partners? 
we'll, we will do that. So we're building a team to do that, and we, we're going to build a big chemical plant in Tennessee uh, in a city called Etowah, halfway between Chattanooga and Knoxville. And we should announce our permits for that project very soon, and we're very excited about that project. How much of a boost or a lift does the government tax credit get you, right? Does it get you 30% on what the you know, bottom line would otherwise be? Or just kind of give us a sense, like how, how big of a, of a help is it? So there's several programs. So the most important program, the, the program people talk about is this 30D tax credit, which is for a buyer of an electric vehicle. They get a tax credit on their tax return for buying it, depending if, if, the, if that car uses sufficient domestic minerals right. in it and if they have a certain income level, et cetera. There are other credits. There's a 45X credit, which is really a tax credit for us as a producer. That's very significant. That came with the IRA. Uh, and that's what's really helping people like us advance our projects, finance them more easily. But it's also bringing in the LG chems and others of the world to, big more, to build more battery plants and cathode plants, et cetera, here in this country. How many jobs are we talking for stuff like this? Well, in our company, we should have over 500 between Carolina and uh, Tennessee. We'll have another several hundred in, in our partnerships in Ghana and Quebec. It's, it's thousands and thousands, obviously. So you've seen some, you know, in the, in the traditional car business, which is uh, over time just gonna be transformed into an electrified electrify business. It's a very different, uh, the very different automotive manufacturing process. Uh, but the battery process is very significant, very labor intensive. So you'll see a lot of jobs in and that And it's whole fascinating to chain. watch those jobs move out of the traditional car producing areas of the country to air regions you're mentioning that aren't typically associated with that. Real quickly, this is very short term, well, not very short term, but we are seeing signs of maybe over um, supply of EVs right now, at, you know, lithium price all over the place. Um, what do the next 18 months mean for you in terms of whether that demand starts to slow down a little bit, kind of normalize the marketplace? Yeah, I think we're in the new normal. I mean, lithium prices went up 8x um, from 2020 to 2022. They've come down 50%, so we're now up 4x, which is a place where I think, I think is a reasonable place for them to stay for a long time. I think they'll stay there for, some, for a decade or more. There, it, it takes a couple of years to build an EV plant. It takes a couple of years to build a battery plant. It takes a decade to build a mine. Wow. It takes a long time for the raw materials to and come And you online. covered all these companies, the Rios, and, the, and you know better than anyone how difficult a business it can be. Mining hard, and the chemical business is hard, and producing you know, pure materials that the car companies need, the batteries need, is, is hard. But uh, you know, we're out to do it, and, and, and we hope to benefit the country and our shareholders. Well, investors seem excited. Stock's up almost 6% today. Keith, thanks for coming right. on. Talk to us about it. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks for having Keith me. Keith Phillips with Piedmont Mining, a name you're going to hear more and more about in Piedmont Lithium, I should say. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.